0: This is the Partially Examined Life preview to episode 260, where we wrap up our treatment of John Locke's An Essay Concerning Human Understanding. After episode 259, we still had a few more sections and issues from book two that we wanted to talk about, all of which had something to do with ethics. So here you get to hear about the first third of the discussion. If you want to hear the whole thing, go to partiallyexaminedlife.com support this is in the context of relations so it's not just that an action is good or bad he's actually giving kind of a moral semantics here tell us about moral
1: semantics <laughs> <laughs> i didn't get a chance to listen to your guys previous discussion so you'll have to loop me in on the thread or i'll just have to pick it up as we go along i think that stands
2: on its own enough I think it's just that Locke is excited by the idea that when we think about morality, we're thinking about a relation. In particular, we're thinking about the agreement or disagreement of some action with some particular rule or law. And I think he sees that as really significant. And that's kind of the upshot of this or that the starting point, let's say, of this chapter.
0: So, we spent a lot of time last time wringing our hands over what a relation is. Is it a complex idea? Is it a simple idea because it is just referring to the the one element that is hooking up two elements that are extrinsic to it, which I think is that you can have you know the idea that power is a simple idea that seems weird because power is something affecting me. It is a relation, but yet he says right up front in chapter seven of book two that power is a simple idea that's because A relation can be a simple, but there are lots of things that we take to be simples that really are relational in a hidden way. And so he actually starts this chapter off 28 talking about whiter and sweeter, which we talked about last time. Those are obviously referring to, like, you know, multiple things, but you might think that an action's being good or something that's just intrinsic to the action. And as Wes just said, no, it's actually, as we learned last time about complex ideas, mixed modes, in a certain way, they're just observations. They're just compounded observations. So when we observe the person who came up with the idea of generosity looked at some actions, you know, somebody giving something to somebody else, and then also had an idea of motives, and put together that idea. So when you ask, is the idea of generosity true or false or something, there's something, it is just like white is gonna be by definition a veridical, a legitimate idea because it comes straight from the environment. So these ones that we construct voluntarily in our mind by putting together these simple ideas from reflection and sensation, the only way that we can really be wrong about it is once I come up with the idea of generosity, and I tell it to you, then you might get it wrong. So you could get the word wrong. You know, the word could lose its connection to that initial compound of simple ideas.
2: I mean, I think it's worth, Mark, just pausing on your point there, because to say what it means, for instance, for something like murder to be a complex idea, and in particular, a mixed mode, right? It's mixed in the sense that there are ideas of reflection going into it and ideas of sensation. And ultimately, it's all resolvable down to simple ideas. And he has a nice and interesting example for murder in chapter 13, where he he says, "Okay, think about the different ideas of reflection involved in murder. You're talking about willing. You're talking about malice. He includes life in there, perception, self-motion. And then think about the ideas of sensation. Get very, very concrete. So the way he puts it, some action whereby we put an end to perception and motion. In the man. So it's mixed in the sense it puts together those ideas of sensation and reflection. And then we take that, and when we want to talk about the morality of that, we think about how that complex idea will agree or disagree with some standard. And the standard itself is also something man made, let's say, something made by the mind, although Locke will argue that there's a basis for this in God's, you know, what God dictates, but he gets in a lot of trouble by saying, he has a long footnote responding to someone who who accuses him of being a relativist, but he gets in trouble by saying that that rule is ultimately, in the case of virtue and viciousness, the rule is ultimately emergent on social consensus. In other words, it's a matter of esteem or condemnation that we meet with. So so how do we know whether murder is right or wrong, virtuous or vicious? What standard is it that we can judge that complex idea by? Well, the standard is just I see other people being condemned for the wrong things they do, and I see them being praised for the good things I do. And that's the standard that I learn how to apply to determine whether something is good or bad.
3: That's exactly right. But isn't it also added in that murder would be an example like stealing for which you conflate the name with the judgment regarding? Regarding the rule. So, murder is bad killing as opposed to other kinds of killing that might not be immoral, like killing somebody in a battle at the front. And stealing, we say that someone stole something. And uh, the example that he uses is that when we call it stealing, we include the judgment that it's bad. Somebody goes into your house and steals your TV. But the Person who rests the knife from someone who is about to stab somebody else, it's not called stealing. He didn't steal the knife when, in fact, you would call that thing stealing just by understanding the name of what you're taking, you know, taking something from someone that belongs to them. But we conflate the judgment regarding its moral worth with the name that we use for it often.
2: Yeah, this is section 16 that you're referring to. And we've seen this before, right? There's a hidden relation often that gets sucked into the concept itself when it should be distinguished. So like a word like concubine, for instance, father, we think of immediately as relational, but we might not think of the word like concubine that way. And in the same way, a word like murder can kind of suck in the relational component into it. Whereas we should try to distinguish those, says Locke, because it can lead us into error like the one you just described, Dylan.
0: Can I just clarify that bringing murder and father together makes it sound like the relational component is the fact that it's like one person murdering another person, like one person is the father of another person, but the relational component is the normative claim.
2: That's what I've been trying to explain. Yep.
0: Yeah. Why isn't it the case that there's just, it seems like Locke believes that there actually is a divine law, that God gets to decide what's good and evil. And so something is objectively, we want to say that if he was writing as an ethicist, as opposed to a moral psychologist, then it seems like he would be saying that if the action corresponds to the divine law, then it is in fact right. But that's only part of his story.
2: Not the one he's most interested in at all, by far. As was
3: noted earlier, I mean, this moral relation has to do with judging whether the action is in alignment with the rule. And he categorizes three groups of rules, divine rule, civil rule, and rule of fashion. And the judgment of the moral relation could be with respect to any of those three. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Ultimately, the standard is what God decrees or what God punishes or what God rewards. And Locke thinks that this idea of punishment and reward is actually very important because he thinks that the whole idea of law conceptually includes that, right? And so as a kind of analogy here to natural law, where the in natural law, we think of it as a law just because we think there's an element of compulsion there, right? A planet tracing its orbit just has to do that. And if we want to think about morality in terms of laws as well, then we cannot just separate the element of compulsion. So the concept of punishment and reward, which occurs in all three of these different forms in different ways, right? So God's punishment or for the civil law, you can be sent to prison or executed. And then most importantly, for the moral law, for viciousness and virtue, you get punished by approbation or disapprobation.
0: Can I read the quote from six about this? There are three sorts of laws with their three different enforcements or rewards or punishments for since it would be utterly in vain to suppose a rule set to the free actions of men without annexing to it some enforcement of good and evil to determine his will, we must, wherever we suppose a law, suppose also some reward or punishment annexed to that law. This seems profoundly weird to me. <laughs> what would you guys think of this? Well, particularly the good part, right? Uh huh. The way he's thinking about it is,
3: I think, the way West described it. If you think of a law as being like the law of gravity, that forces a planet to orbit around the sun, then it's going to be causing actions in both ways. It's not just necessarily knocking down bad actions, but it's also cultivating either implicitly or explicitly certain kinds of desirable actions. And it made me think a lot about not just laws like laws against murder and stealing, but other kinds of laws that we don't always think of as being associated with moral goods, but the laws of our economy and the laws of other kinds of actions that really translate into paths of getting goods and getting honors and rewards, and that our laws do both those things. I hadn't really thought of it that way very often, but it became clear to me that's what our laws do.
2: And the question is, why call something a law unless it has some sort of causal force or unless it gives a general description of some causal interaction, right? Why why would we even call it a law? I mean, that's just one alternative we might appeal to here. What is it that motivates people? What is it that would cause them to act in conformity with some law, right? Esteem or condemnation might be one thing, but what about just being responsive to what is good? What about reflection? So we might appeal to a more ancient Greek virtue ethics Kind of conception of this as well so there's habituation for instance but there's also just the fact that we're rational animals and we can figure out what is good and what is good is something accessible to reason and so what we are ultimately compelled by is reasons not punishment so that's the alternative conception here that it's not like it doesn't come up in Locke. we'll see it in the power chapter we can be responsive to reasons we can be responsive to what is good But he doesn't really describe that alternative here.
3: I like that because it's emphasizing the way punishments work for Locke is they seem to work via our reason. I mean, the way in which a punishment would be a deterrent would be that we would not want to encounter the pain associated with that deterrent. So therefore, we would move in a different direction. It seems like an act of reason from
2: Locke's perspective. That's a good point, because even when good and evil will turn out to be pain and pleasure, ultimately. Yes. And when we are reasoning about what's good to do in a way, we're navigating the world's natural punishments, right? The reality principle. So we can just get punished by consequences as well or rewarded by consequences.
0: Yeah, I like that. And I'm trying to feel around how best to characterize that in terms of I think causality might not be the the thing. I mean, I kind of take Catherine Wilson's word for it that Locke didn't really have the insight that Kant later did of, can we think about natural law and moral law as being one and the same thing? I don't know if that's really true, but I was kind of trying to see it as, I feel like that's what you're doing, Wes, in saying that it's a matter of causality. It's also not a matter strictly of teleology of, yes, we naturally go toward the good, but we can be thwarted in various ways. He's going to have a complicated story about that in chapter 21 that we'll get to, but it's not merely a matter of thwarted causality because he doesn't believe in innate ideas. He doesn't believe that we are all naturally magnetized toward the good. So there has to be some relationship between we all want happiness. We don't, according to the story, we don't always know what that is. There's a natural alignment just by definition between happiness and the moral good that I feel like is both a priori, right? Because we are saying this whole thing, like what determines whether a moral rule is legitimate or not is, in some sense, just a matter of the definition, right? The person who came up with the notion of generosity in the first place, and are we using generosity correctly in the first place? But then, as you say, like there are real world consequences. He wants to kind of have it both ways that. Plato says that the reason that we are magnetized toward the good is not just because there's, you know, an ethereal form out there in heaven beckoning to us, but because our soul is not in alignment. Is because there's something natural in our human nature that will be screwed up if we don't do the good thing. And so... Locke wants to give a version of that, even though it's not so strong.
2: And I think it's somewhat implicit. So just just saying that virtue and vice, how we determine them are emergent on esteem and condemnation, you know, he'll later say, well, that doesn't mean I'm a relativist. And in fact, even though these things do vary between societies in general, it's pretty much the same. So then the question is, why is it pretty much the same between societies and people? And I'll I'll say, you know, even people who are kind of vicious will at least be hypocrites. So at least pay lip service to these rules. So we all kind of know the rules. And it's not that we need innate ideas, right? To be naturally drawn to what's good. He admits we have innate tendencies and capacities, and he'd probably say instincts too. He just doesn't like the innate idea formulation of that. So I guess the question is, you know, how are you responsive to natural law? Is it, you know, are we just naturally responsive? Do we even need, is it that we have some conception of God's punishment that pushes us in that direction or natural punishments, unhappiness? You know, those are the questions.
1: I mean, doesn't the framework that he put in place require us to say what it means to be responsive to the natural laws that we need to be able to either directly or through education, blah, 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 perceive it clearly and distinctly, like without the ability for contradiction. And it's the same epistemic criteria.
3: I think you're right. But there's a way in which his appeal to God gets him wrapped around the axle a little bit because, for at least from my perspective, and maybe from the perspective of the critics that he responds to in his uh, footnote, is he seems to be completely consistent, but has to sort of pull a rabbit out of a hat regarding the ability for us to perceive God's, that the alignment of our understanding of, say, moral relations from our senses is in accord with the rules God would put forward because it's not at all clear how those are necessarily gathered from the senses. He sort of says both things alternately that, you know, of course, God's will governs these laws and moral relations, but he seems to be much more emphatic about the stuff that we've talked about all along, which is that, you know, more relations are relations, that our judgments about them come through our senses. And I just think that he has a hard time reconciling those things.
0: Yeah, that's the big thing Catherine Wilson points out in her essay is this tension between the good is an objective thing out in the world, Kind of like a substance, like gold, that we don't know its inner nature until we do some sort of investigation. So there really is a generosity, the good kind of generosity, and then the kind where we are kind of inflating yourself through this supposed act of generosity that it seems like there are true and false ways of generosity. Do you really want to examine that as just a merely a priori relation between how the person who defined the word originally, or do you want to hook on to the natural, whether the connection to the law of God or something that is objectively out in the world and un- known that needs investigation.
3: The gold one is a really good example because when he talks about gold, he says that we have an idea about what we mean by gold when we go look for it. And we can rightly talk about whether or not something is or is not gold. But we also could refine that idea. We could be wrong about what ends up being gold and we could end up being changing it. And so that's going to be true about moral judgments as well, is that they get refined along the way, even though we have an idea of what they are.
2: The question is, what are we investigating? Are we investigating human psychology and trying to derive normativity out of that? Or is goodness and badness, are they just simple, brute metaphysical properties? How are we getting at all that? That's, I think, uh, the question.
0: It seems it has to be the former, you know, due to to Locke's entire program, even his connection to Revelation. And, you know, if we think that objective good is going to mean God's law, just his overall take, I did take a look at some of the stuff he had on faith in here. And it just ends up being like, well, if reason doesn't tell you either way on a question, then faith can determine it. But it can't fly in the face of reason. By reason, I'm meaning to say what our simple ideas feed up to us. That is the only tool we have for knowledge is what we get out of this experience. So yeah, that becomes a limiting factor on what if somebody comes and tells you something, whether in the moral field or otherwise, that just flies in the face of your reason and experience, you can't believe that. You're unable to do so. It becomes much more likely that they are lying, that it's not a real revelation. It did not actually come from God, that your reason is wrong.
1: Mark, the key word you're using there is belief. I mean, I'm trying to take Locke at his word here and buy into the epistemic enterprise that the book is comprised of. And Wes, you asked, what are the things that we're actually debating about or what's really at issue here? It has to be an idea, simple or complex, but it has to be an idea. He's not making a statement about absolute moral truths, innate or real in the sense of we're not talking about you don't have a simple idea, an experience that generates a simple idea of generosity, for example. So these are complex, mixed ideas that then you have to put through the same vetting process. And what's at issue here is, are they beliefs? Do you believe this? Or is it an idea that you can come to a form of certainty by using the rational method and your intellect to get to? And that's where I think it gets cloudy.
0: And I think you could be rationally certain that the action that you are committing accords or doesn't accord with the social norm. Presumably, you've experienced the social norm in various ways. Whether that social norm, in fact, accords with God's law or whatever the objective thing is, I don't know, he doesn't really... Consider that.
2: That's the amazing thing. It just yeah. does not interest him that much. <laughs> Except to say that the esteem and disapprobation standard doesn't really vary that much usually from natural law. So how does he know that though? <laughs> What's the criterion? How do you establish that? And I like the you know, the way you guys have compared that to scientific investigation you know how do we determine what gold really is based on what it just seems to be and then we delve a little bit into some of the possibilities like looking at human psychology we investigate human psychology and the ancients did that as well aristotle was doing that as well and we and that's how we figure out the real standard
0: all right that's all you get if you wanted to get the full discussion you can hear us talk about power free will and moral psychology You can do that by becoming a $5 supporter, what we call a Partially Examined Life citizen, which you can do via our site or through Patreon. Find out about those options at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. Thanks!